if you're just joining us, or if you're just joining us for the first time in a while, uh, we are taking a little break. We're in the middle of the book of Exodus. And let me just say, don't miss next week, because I'm excited. Next week, we are launching a new series in Exodus chapter 20. And um, we are going to be really digging into one of the most um, powerful, inf influential, epic passages of Scripture next week. Don't miss that. Or if you have to miss it, tune on or come back and join us online. All right. So today what we're doing, and last week we launched, we've got a mini-series, two weeks, in a little letter in the New Testament called Philemon. It was written by the Apostle Paul, and Apostle Paul is, writes a good share of the New Testament, and God uses him, he inspires him to write a good share of the books of the New Testament, and this one is a tiny little one-chapter um, letter that he writes to a guy named Philemon where he's going to encourage and write Philemon and ask him to do something very difficult in reconciling a relationship in his life. And as we started last week, um, something I said was that last week, uh, we, we just took a little poll, a little survey. We won't do that again today. But last week I asked, you know, anybody in this season feeling any tension? And yeah, a lot of hands are up, right? Or anybody in this season maybe have a relationship in your life that wasn't quite as good as it was or maybe is broken now because of just the polarization and all everything going on in the midst of this season. And also some hands, a bunch of hands went up in the room. And some of you have a relationship in your life right now. Maybe it's due to this season or maybe it's just due to something that happened, you know, years ago that's broken. Maybe you have an extended family member uh, or a previous coworker or someone you, know, you were in a small group with or I don't know, but somebody and there's that tension and that relationship is just broken. I have an extended family member that I let fly some of the things I've been wanting to say for a while. Anybody ever done that? You're like, you, Pastor? Yeah. I'm not different. I, I just get to speak, you know. They just give me this. We all struggle sometimes, don't we? I, and I let loose and said some of the things that I've been wanting that have been building up and I've been wanting to say for a while, and I said them, and it broke the relationship. And I'm going back now and trying to, you know, slowly mend that, repair that, see if we can make that happen again. Maybe some of you have that in your life as well. And so whether it's in this season or many years past, you know, here's something that we see in Scripture is that reconciliation is on the heart of God. It's just on the heart of God. I'm going to give you the bottom line right up front in case you drift off to sleep or something. Um, hopefully I'll keep you awake. But in case, you're a little mellow this morning, so you never know. So I'm going to give you the bottom line up front, and then we're going to dive into the Scripture and take some real big bunny trails along the way to get us where we're headed. But here, here's the bottom line up front. The cross is where the unreconcilable are reconciled. The cross, it's, at the, it's the gospel, it's the cross, where things that otherwise could not come together, people that otherwise could not or would not come together, it's where they are reconciled. And, and one thing you can't help but notice if you go through the writings of Paul in the New Testament is that reconciliation was a really big theme to him. It was something that was really on his heart. 
You see, Paul took the, uh, the teachings. He, Paul hung out with people who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, who were Jesus buddies, who hung out with Jesus, and they told him all about Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. He hung out with Peter. And I'm sure Paul had heard all about the teaching on the Sermon of the Mount and uh, Sermon on the Mount and one of this amazing, this amazing thing Jesus said, and that is that if you, if you're at the very altar as Jesus is preaching, which in a Jewish culture is like the, the highest, holiest place. Jesus says, if you're at the very altar of God, you're offering your sacrifice, you're at the altar, and you recognize and you realize that your brother or your sister has something against you, that you've offended them in some way, that you've done something that's caused damage and harm to that relationship, Paul, uh, Jesus says, I want you to Leave your gift at the altar. And everybody listening would go, this is like the most big deal thing they do in their whole faith, right? This is the thing they do that, that, that is a symbol of, of God forgiving their sins and, and, and the relationship being repaired. He said, no, 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 just leave it and go fix your relationship with your brother or sister. Go fix that thing that's in between you first and then come back and offer your sacrifice to God. And it's this revolutionary thing that Paul presents in, in, in Scripture, in, in his letter. And it's this incredible concept. And Paul takes that, and Paul translates that into terms and ideas for the Gentile world. And basically what you see in the book of Philemon is Paul begins to realize, wow, Jesus was reconciling the world to God and reconciling each other, us to each other. Through the cross, we have a vertical relationship where, where we're being reconciled to God and a horizontal relationship where we're being reconciled to our family and our friends and, and fellow man. And the cross is the great equalizer. And he begins to apply that. And the book of Philemon is, is an application of that truth. And so last week, we launched this series. And what we talked about was in the middle of this polarized, tense uh, situation that so many find themselves in. And all these things back and forth on social media. And in the middle of this, how do you approach? What Paul does in the first section of this book that we looked at last week is that he really says... Uh, to Philemon, I want to appeal to you on the basis of love. Let's dive in. Philemon, verse 8. And, and see, remember, he's been buttering at, at this point in the story. He's been just praising Philemon. I mean, he calls him the partner in the gospel. He had led Philemon to Jesus. Philemon is a, is a, is a, uh, a man of some means in this culture who'd, who'd come to Jesus and then opened up his home to the gospel. And so he'd led him to Jesus and he says, Philemon, I, you know, I just can't speak enough good about you. And actually he's buttering him up because he's about to ask him to do something that's very difficult in this culture. It says this in verse 8. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, I'm an apostle, I led you to Jesus, I have a certain authority that God has commissioned me to plant churches all over the Mediterranean rim, yet, verse 9, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. On the basis of love. And this is what we launched off on last week. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. If you missed it, go back online or on our podcast and listen because I think it's an extremely important conversation for us as followers of Jesus in the midst of this difficult, polarized 
divided time that we find ourselves in in a nation? How do you appeal to people who maybe don't see eye to eye? How do you appeal to a coworker? You're just like, man, you're totally, I don't even, we're on a whole different plane here. I, I don't even barely know how to talk like in, about some of these things, right? How do you have those conversations from the, uh, uh, and how do you appeal to people from the basis of love? It's such an important thing. And I had five keys for you on that last week. So Paul says, I want to appeal to you. I don't want to make you do this. I don't want to force you to do this. I want you to do this because of love for others. And I'm going to appeal to you in the thing I'm about ready to ask you to do from the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul. You know me. An old man now and also a prisoner of Christ Jesus that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Okay, so he's been praising him, he's been praising him, and the tension's building, and now right here he gets to what he's actually writing about. He's appealing on the basis of this guy named Onesimus. And here's what you got to understand. I'm going to throw a map up here. In the Roman Empire, Paul is writing to Philemon, who lives in Colossae. And here's, as we put together the account in Scripture, here's how we understand it. Philemon is a man of some wealth. He is a slave owner, which was extremely common. Anyone of any means in this point in history in the Roman Empire would have owned slaves. In fact, at this point in the Roman Empire, up to about a half of the Roman Empire could have been made up of slaves. They could not even imagine living without slaves. Kind of in the same way you could hardly imagine living out without electricity and without um, running water, Right? And so they, this, it, it was built into their culture. Now, here's what happens in this story, is that Paul leads Philemon to Jesus, and somewhere, maybe before that, or maybe after that, um, Onesimus, who is a slave who's owned by Philemon, he steals from Philemon, we believe, as we put the thing together, he steals money, and he flees to either Ephesus or Rome. Scholars uh, think one of these two places where Paul was imprisoned. And so he, he flees and he tries to just go to a big, the nearest big city and blend into the population where he can get a new start as, you know, an escaped slave. But here's the problem. In this culture, this is a capital offense. Slaves had, you know, no rights. They were, they were treated as property. And um, he would be probably, if caught, he would be just summarily executed. That's what would happen in this situation. And that's what everyone would expect to happen. Well, when Nisimus somehow gets connected with Paul and through this whole encounter, he finds Jesus. He finds Jesus and his life is changed and he begins to, to be set on a new path of following Jesus. And along this way, Paul realizes like he cannot because, because of all the relationships involved and because of just what's right, he cannot spare him from what has to come next. And at some point, Winesimus, his heart is moved to the point where he's willing, and Paul says, I want you to go back to Philemon. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the tension? Can you imagine? He actually uh, writes this letter and sends it back with Philemon. Can you imagine what he was feeling as he kind of comes up and goes, uh, here, read this. And this is where we find ourselves. There's incredible tension. 
And here's what you need to understand, because there's a narrative that's, that's going around in our culture by and large, and maybe some of you in, in a college class or in just a, a, as you've been reading or as you've been watching stuff flying around in the media, there is a narrative around some of these scriptures. And here's what you have to understand, and I think this is really important. This is a bit of a bunny trail. We're going to go down it because I think it's an important conversation for us right now. But there's a bit of a narrative, there's an overall narrative in our culture that somehow uh, you look back at the writings in Scripture and go, you know what, the Bible actually has been used to support slavery and racism. And you know what, that's right, it has been, but it's been twisted throughout history. At any point that it's been used to support that, it's been twisted. And here's what you see as you begin to look at the, the writings of Paul in, in the New Testament, is that actually um, some of these very scriptures, Paul will say things to slaves like, hey, slaves, um, obey your master. You're like, what? How could you say that, Paul? He, he's going to send Onesimus back to Philemon. And some of these very passages, actually, some, some, some very evil people have twisted in history to say that this is a support, in support of slavery or in support of racism. It's just not the truth. See, here's what you understand. We need to look at ancient texts and even things that have happened um, a couple hundred years ago through the lens of the, the complicated, crazy situation that's going on at that time in the world, not through what we see right here and right now. It's called context, and context is extremely important. And here, here's what you have to understand. Were any of the New Testament writers to incite slaves to rise up against their masters, they would have essentially been sending them to their death, probably death by crucifixion. Anybody remember a guy named Spartacus in history? That was a slave revolution. 6,000 people along with Spartacus were crucified. And so Paul is writing into this very delicate situation, a situation where the early church is the vast minority, this tiny little thing that's, that's launching in the midst of this Roman empire. There's no power. There's, there's nothing associated with it. And Paul's priority is to see the gospel spread. And so what Paul writes in his letters, actually, though, he does not confront or directly come out or say, he actually says slaves because some could get their freedom in the Roman Empire. So he says, if you can get your freedom, by all means, do that, right? But otherwise, he tells them, I want you to serve in the best way you can and make the gospel look as good as you can. He says the same things to husbands and wives, if you go back and read it. But what he does is he sets this incredibly revolutionary concept into play in these books that go on to undermine the very nature of slavery and the very idea of slavery and racism. When he says things like, in Christ, there's no Jew, no Greek, no male, no female, no slave, no free. We're, we're all, we all are on an equal platform before God. And here's what you got to understand about ancient history. You know, um, some of the earliest accounts, because there's this narrative going on right now. It's actually um, something that, that is, there's a narrative that's been floating around for the last 10, 15 years. And that is basically... Uh, that America somehow invented slavery. You know what? That's just simply not true. In the earliest ancient writings in Mesopotamia, you find accounts of slavery. Some like maybe 2,700 years before Jesus. In the ancient Egyptian empire, you, you see accounts of them sending caravans or uh, barges up the river into Africa 
to enslave people and bring them back. In fact, this book we've been going through in Exodus, what's, what's the Exodus about? Coming out of what? Slavery. They've enslaved the people of Israel for hundreds of years, right? And so Exodus is about this freedom, this liberation. And what you see as you go through these ancient texts, and we might take a whole a week or two on this once we get there in Exodus chapter 21, because it's really powerful. What you see is unlike the Code of Hammurabi, which you've maybe heard of, ancient um, laws, um, unlike that, what you see in the early scriptures in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is this in, these incredible rites and this incredible way of treating people who are not you know, who are aliens and strangers in the land, and then also those who would maybe have to sell themselves into servitude. And so what you see is this incredible revolutionary thing at that time in history. It's freedom. And then as we flash forward, um, you know, into the writings of Paul, the same thing. What you see is this incredible revolutionary thing that actually equalizes and undermines the very foundation of slavery. And it's these writings, some of the same passages that people twisted in the era leading up to the Civil War to try to support slavery. These were the same passages that inspired great people like Wilberforce and some of our founding fathers and Betsy Ross to work against slavery. See, with this narrative that's going around, and I think you just got to understand this right now with all the polarization, it, it is absolutely true. There are terrible injustices. There, there is violence. Um, there were despicable acts in our history, in the history of this nation, that must be acknowledged and remembered, and never repeated, okay? But this isn't the primary story of our nation. You gotta remember, like, just like this time in Rome, when our, when our nation was founded, um, we're made up of 13 little colonies that became individual states that were very independent. They barely came together to form a government. And yet, even in that very early time, the founding fathers were beginning to work hard against and push back against the evils of slavery. Did you know that Christians, followers of Jesus, who read these texts of Paul, were some of the, most, the strongest supporters of the anti-slavery movement in the world? The earliest anti-slavery society in the world was founded by Quakers, a denomination. In fact, Benjamin Franklin became their president a little a short time later. This was before the U.S. was even a nation. Officially, the state of Vermont was the first state, and as far as I can tell from my research, the first like official governmental body to ban slavery in the world in 1777, right when they ratified their state constitution. In fact, they gave um, freed slaves voting rights even, all the way back then. And even though their home state was pro-slavery and they actually inherited slaves, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson worked throughout their lives against for the abolition of slavery. Thomason Jefferson signed one of the earliest pacts and the earliest laws in our history against slavery. It was at the same time that England first banned slavery. Washington, because he worked all his life to try to, um, he tr because of the laws of Virginia, he couldn't legally um, free his slaves, but there was a technicality and he was able to do that in his will upon his death. He was able to free his slaves. And so this is some of the stuff you have to understand as you go back and read the writings of these guys. 
And yet it was a complicated time in history, right? And there were some awful, awful things that happened that we need to acknowledge. It would take 60 more years after Jesserson and a bloody war in which 623,000 lives were lost to end slavery, wouldn't it? And it would take another 100 or so years to end the overt discrimination that we saw in this nation, correct? But here's what you see, and here's what you see as you look at the history. This idea of somehow America was the inventor of slavery. No, no, no. In the 18th and 19th century, the world as a whole was waking up. Slavery was not in just an American thing. This was like an every nation thing. And they were waking up and beginning nation by nation by nation. And, and America, even though they weren't the first to actually ban it, was at the leading forefront of this. They were working to ban slavery to stop this, this awful discrimination, right? In fact, the last nation on earth, you may or may not know this, to outlaw slavery was actually not until 1981. And that was Mauritania, actually an African nation, which is very ironic. That was the last place in the world, the last nation to officially ban slavery. Now, here's what you need to know. And this is important. You've been seeing this go around. And this is an important thing to remember that still some 40 million people in the world are estimated to be in some form of slavery. Sex trafficking or indentured servitude, various things. 40 million people. And there's some wonderful organizations that are working against this, like the International Justice Mission, or our good friends over at Outpour Movement on the border of Thailand and Myanmar that are working against trafficking and some of these things. But this is still a big problem. And the problem lies in the heart of man. The problem lies in the love of money, which Paul says is a root of all kinds of evil. It lies in hatred in the human heart. And so while we need to acknowledge the things that have happened, we also need to have a correct narrative about what has actually gone on and how complicated some of these situations are. And so, like, for Paul, can you imagine this complicated situation? In this incredibly different culture, 2,000 years ago, Paul writes this little letter to Philemon, and he's about ready to ask him to do something unthinkable in the culture. He's about ready to do, ask him to do something that his neighbors and peers would look down on him for. He's about ready to ask him to do something. Can you imagine? Here, Onesimus, take this letter to Philemon. Onesimus, like, do I have to? I don't really want to. And he, just in terror, brings this up. But Paul addresses it to Philemon, his, husband, or his, uh, his wife and son, as well as to the whole church. So he's kind of on the spot. Paul wants him to be accountable, but he also knows his heart. And so he boldly sends him this letter where he's going to do, ask him to do something so countercultural in the time. And that's why he writes and says, I appeal to you on the basis of love for my son, Onesimus. Verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. And this is, Paul does something really interesting in the Greek here. Onesimus in the Greek, his name actually means useful, which is interesting, right? And so he's like, useful wasn't very useful for you. 
Useful was useless for you. But now, he's been changed. The, the, the dude that stole money from you and ran away, that, you know, should be under Roman law, executed, no mercy. He's actually been changed. His heart has been changed. And this is such a key point because the gospel changes hearts. That's why we have a basis for reconciliation because we know that the gospel transforms people, that the grace of God transforms people, that, it, that Jesus, that God meets us where we're at. Grace is called unmerited favor, right? It changes people. It changes people. And there's this thing going on in our culture today which, gosh, needs also to be addressed where dumb things or sinful things that somebody did 20 or 30 years ago in spite of a life that is evidence is completely different than that now are dug up and held, completely held against them and caused them to be canceled. That's not, that's not compatible with the gospel. The gospel is about grace. Now I'm not saying people that have you know, had patterns and lifestyles don't need to be held accountable for their actions or their words. Absolutely not. That's called the consequence of sin. Even in grace... We know that sometimes you may be forgiven, but you're paying for the consequence of your sin. Some of you, that broken relationship in your life that needs to be reconciled is because you sinned and now you're paying for the consequence of that sin as that broken relationship is worked out in your life. And it may be a month later, it may be 10 or 20 years later, and you're still trying to, to go back and fix that because there are consequences, aren't there? So I'm not saying there's no consequences, but what I am saying is this idea that people don't change and that we don't give people second chances and that one little thing you tweeted or said or this should end your, your public life. This is a dangerous thing and it's not compatible with the gospel because the gospel at its core is about forgiveness. At its core, it's about second chances and third chances. You, you remember Jesus when... Peter, all feeling confident, comes up and says, Lord, all right, we heard this forgiveness thing, but how many times? How many times? I mean, seven times seven? Like, that should be reasonable, right? How many times, Lord? Seven times? Seven times seven? Peter's like, we'll be generous, you know? And Jesus looks at him and goes, how about 70 times seven? And Peter's like trying to count, you know? That's a lot, Jesus. And Jesus is like, that's the point. The point is when somebody sincerely repents, there's this thing that it's almost like a, it's almost like Jesus is saying, I know, I get it. This is hard, but guess what? You just forgive. Don't worry about it. Just stop counting. Just forgive. Let it go. Forgiveness. And so Paul writes and says, hey, formerly this guy, he was useless to you, but now He's become incredibly useful to the service of the gospel. In fact, his heart has been changed. His heart has been changed. And because of that, Paul wants to write and says, I want to see reconciliation happen here because it's a living example of what the gospel is supposed to do in our lives. It's a living example of what Jesus did for us, reconciling us to the Father and reconciling us to each other. So Paul goes on, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. So he calls him his son, right? And then he, he lets Philemon know how important this guy Onesimus is to Paul. And this is a great principle. Because the truth is, 
do you want to know how, how to treat me well? If, if you're buddy-buddy with me and, and nice to me, but, but you're lousy to my kids, we're not going to be very good. We're not going to be good, are we? We're not going to be good. You can, you can treat me well. You can say, hey, I think the world of you, and go and, you know, be lousy to my kids. Not going to matter, is it? And so Paul wants, when Onesimus shows up, Paul wants Philemon to see him as not just your former slave who ran away. In fact, I don't want you to see him at all like that. I want you to see him as like, this is me standing in front of you. This is my son. How do you want to treat him? How do you want to see him? Because to Paul, this bond that he has with Onesimus, who he's led to Jesus, is, is like a father and his son. I love it. I would like to have kept him, or I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. This is such a key in the way we relate to others and the way we lead others. Parents, in the way you parent your kids. You might be able to force people into something, but without changed hearts, you can win the battle, but you won't win the war. Anybody experience that? Any parents in the room, do you experience that? Come on. You're like, I'm not admitting it. One. All right. Yeah, you've experienced that, haven't you? Like at a certain age, you can physically make your children do, and then they grow, and you're like, I can't move you anymore, right? But ultimately, what you figure out is they grow. The only influence you really have at a certain point is that connection of the heart and that influence. If you built a heart connection, that's why heart connection is so much more important than just behavior modification. Because you might be able to make someone do something, but if it's not something that's on their heart, it ain't going to stick, is it? And as soon as they're out from under your authority or your sphere of influence, guess what? They're not going to do it. They're not going to go along with it. He wants it to be voluntary. Verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you a little while was so that you might have him back forever. Now, this is so cool. Paul, as he looks at this, says, actually, here's what I see. Maybe, just maybe, this whole situation was part of God's plan. It was part of God's plan. He, he stole money from you and ran away, which was lousy. But you remember Joseph? His brothers sold him into slavery, which was lousy, terrible. And yet somehow in the midst of all this, God was working behind the scenes to orchestrate a better plan. And your response to, the, to this situation right now will help determine the outcome. In other words, Maybe God had this incredible plan all along, and I'm about ready to ask you to do something difficult, but understand that that is part of God's plan. So perhaps the reason, maybe the reason he was separated is you might have him back forever. 16, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. This is revolutionary. He says, hey, I think God was working behind the scenes. He took you away. He allowed him to steal money, run away, but God brought him to me. And throughout this whole situation, now you get him back. And guess what? You don't just get somebody to serve you back. 
You've got a brother back. Isn't that better? Isn't that better? You, you don't seem convinced. Servant, brother. Brother's better, isn't it? Brother's relationship. Brother's companionship. Brother is an intimate relationship. Brother is encouragement. Brother is someone that will stick with you to the end. And he says, this is what the gospel and the cross does. I love that picture, you know, right in the beginning of all the, the protests and, and riots that were erupting around the nation of this police officer and this protester um, of opposite races just hugging each other because their common faith brought them together because the gospel is the thing that equalizes. The gospel is the thing that breaks down barriers and walls when applied correctly. When applied consistently through the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the New Testament, the gospel is the one thing that does that. The gospel is the hope of our nation. It is. And God, Paul says, you've got, now you don't just have somebody to serve you, you have a brother. Let me just ask you, in all your interactions with people, whether it's online, whether it's at the store, you know, whether it's that young kid who's forced to tell you, it's not their job, tell you, uh, sorry, sir, man, you have to have a mask. How do you treat them? How do you see them? How do, you, how do you treat, how do you see the person who serves you at the restaurant, the person who checks you out at the grocery store? Are they just there to serve you? Or do you see them as this is a potential brother or sister? This is someone that, that, is, that has the potential to be in my life in eternity forever. If I handle this interaction right, maybe I can help move them in that direction. That's called being gospel-centered and gospel-focused, and it's critical it's critical in the way we interact with people. Because through your actions and through your responses, you can either drive people away from Jesus or you can draw people towards Jesus. How do you treat them? How do you see them? Just someone who's there to serve you or as a soul and someone that could be a brother or a sister for eternity. Paul says, you've got a brother here. So as you're making this hard decision on what to do, remember, this is your brother. This is your brother. Yeah, you used to be a servant and a slave, but there's been a fundamental shift. And that needs to inform what you do next. Verse 17. So if you consider me, Paul, me writing this, a partner, which he just praised him earlier and went, man, you are a primary partner in the advance of the gospel. And, and Philemon's feeling good as, they're, you know, as he's reading this letter. And all of a sudden, if you consider me, it's getting a little harder at this point, a little more tense, the stakes are going up. If you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done anything wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. This little echo back to the Good Samaritan parable, right? Charge it to me, I'll pay for it. Paul, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. And I love this. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. <laughs> Anybody in your life like, oh, not to mention you've had those conversations, then they remind you of something very important. Not to mention, I love it. Paul just throws this in there. I remember, you know, your eternal destiny 
in Jesus and all, all, all that, your very life. <clears throat> kind of the dude that led you to Jesus. Kind of influence. And here's what he's doing, is he is leveraging his influence on behalf of someone who doesn't have influence. You see that? Paul is very influential, and he is taking his influence and leveraging it on behalf of someone who is not powerful, who does not have influence, who does not have prestige, who does not have position. And this is such a huge theme. Another pastor I love, he says it this way, do for one what you wish you could do for every, everyone. And I think it's such a powerful statement. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And here's what I think. In the midst of this crazy, polarized, tense situation all over our nation, if believers would all begin to do this, if believers would all begin to look for those in their life that are marginalized, look for those who maybe can't advocate for themselves, look for those who, who don't have a position of privilege or authority and actually personally do for them. I mean, sometimes you look at the problems of society and it's overwhelming, isn't it? It's like, I don't know how to fix that. I don't know how to fix all these problems. Man, it's just overwhelming. The way you begin to fix it is you do for one what you wish you could do for many. That when the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I want you to reach out with love for them. I want you to advocate for them. I want you to, maybe it's like, you know, working with CASA or partners or something like that. It's going, okay, Lord, I'm gonna, I, I, I can't fix the whole situation, but I can, I can help this one. I can make it right for this one. I can advocate for this one. And I think if every follower of Jesus did that in this nation, it would revolutionize and transform our nation. It would change things fundamentally because it would change things from a heart level. And so Paul advocates for this guy. Verse 20, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And see, here's this really cool thing that Paul does in this letter. Although Paul never directly writes blatantly, all slaves should be abolished, like I said, in all the texts, as you put them together, that the gospel is this great equalizer. He undermines the whole foundation and basis of slavery. And many scholars think that he is hinting right now at, hey, I would like you to do even more than I ask. I am asking you to receive him as a brother, not to punish him, not to, you know, kill him, like, every, like the pressure all around. This culture, your neighbors are going to be like, what, you had a runaway slave and you didn't beat him? You didn't whip him? You didn't, you didn't, execute him? What are all the others going to think? What are you thinking? You're going to start a revolution here. Don't you remember Spartacus back there? You don't want that to happen, and you're the homeboy that started it. That's the pressure, right? And so Paul writes to him and goes, no, 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 I, I, I'm confident you're going to do even more than I ask. He's hinting, I believe. He's hinting. I, I want you to free him. I want you to free him. Not just forgive him, I want you to do the right thing. I want you to free him. And here's the really cool thing. Here's the cool thing. Is that the second century church father, Ignatius, writes this really cool thing in history. He says, I receive, therefore, your whole multitude in the name of God through, I recognize this name, Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love 
and your bishop in the flesh, whom I pray you by Jesus Christ to love and that you would all seek to be like him. And scholars believe this is the one and same Onesimus. And as Paul uses his influence to write Philemon on the behalf of this guy, it it appears like Philemon responds with the heart that Paul knew he would. And he does even more than Paul asked him to do. Because you see this account very shortly after this in church history of this guy who apparently has become a bishop and someone that this great church father says, I wish you would all be like this guy. And that is the influence of taking the step that Jesus is calling you to take. That is the influence of saying yes, even when it's painful, even when there's so much pressure from the outside saying, I'm going to obey you, Holy Spirit. I'm going to move on behalf of this person. I'm going to speak into this situation. I'm going to advocate for this person. I'm going to respond out of love. I'm going to reconcile. Even though everything in me is telling me, I don't want to take the first step. It was their fault. They did it. I'm right. You may be right. But you never know. Like if Philemon would have punished him Severely in this culture, he would have been right in this culture, but it would not have been the thing that God was calling him to do. And when he obeys and does the thing that God's calling him to do, it brings incredible fruitfulness. And as Paul looks forward and says, maybe this was God's plan, do you think he had any idea, or Philemon or Onesimus, that this would be inspiring us to reconcile with our fellow man, that great men like Wilberforce, would be inspired, and and some of the early fathers would be inspired by this scripture to work for the abolition of slavery. You think they had any idea? It's amazing. 2,000 years later, we're here studying this text and being inspired to align our lives and to reconcile with those that we have issues and differences with. Verse 22. One more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you. Remember, he's in prison. I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. You've been praying for me. I'm going to trust that God's going to bring me to you again. He concludes this letter this way. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. And you know what's cool in there? This guy named Mark. This was a guy that Paul did ministry with earlier. And they had such a strong disagreement. Mark apparently was a slacker. Paul thought he was a sissy. They butted heads. He sent Mark packing. He's reconciled with him. They're doing ministry together again. I think that's really cool. Paul practices what he preaches. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Isn't that a powerful little letter? Isn't that powerful? And where we started is where we'll conclude, and that's this. The cross is where the unreconcilable are reconciled. The gospel is the big equalizer. The gospel is what has inspired so many people to move into the very dark situations in our history. Men like Martin Luther King Jr., all kinds of different examples. And and women you've never heard of, but they just obeyed simply and faithfully and they reconciled. 
And they've been part of the story of the gospel transforming lives in the kingdom of God going forward in this world. You know where it starts? Paul says, we, you and me, have been given the ministry of reconciliation. He says, because of that, we, we, we say, um, it's vertical. We, we implore you to be reconciled to God first. But then the way that works itself out in your life is that faith works itself out in love for each other. That you would be reconciled to one another that you would treat each other like brothers and sisters, that you would view everyone you come in contact with, not just as someone who's there to serve you or better you, but someone who's there who's a potential brother and sister for eternity. If you live that way, it will change things. And so I want to just leave you with a simple question to pray about this week. But don't just pray about it. If God... If God puts it on your heart, would you respond? And this is the question. What first step do you need to take to reconcile a relationship? What first step? There's a relationship you have, and it's broken. And it, you may not think it's your fault, <laughs> But guess what? You probably own a little slice of that pie. There's a pie. You probably own a little slice of that, right? Just a little one. Own your slice. Own your part in it. Don't wait for someone else to make the first move. What relationship is God calling you to take a first step as you pray and go, okay, Lord, I don't know what that looks like. Maybe that's sending a text. Maybe that's picking up the phone and just calling and saying, hey, hey I'm just thinking about you. I know things got crazy or weird. I just want you to know I love you. Maybe that's saying, hey, I know in this situation, here's what I did wrong. Right? Maybe that's what it is. I think it's awesome that one of our oldest congregants has heavy metal ringtones. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. Okay, sorry, I don't mean to embarrass you. I think it's really cool. Um, but maybe that's the thing. Maybe God's calling you to move in the situation. What's the first step he's calling you to take? What's the first step? Would you commit this week to taking that first step? Would you be the one who steps forward to reconcile would you be the one that maybe, maybe advocates on behalf of someone who can't advocate on behalf of themselves? Would you pray? Stand with me, let's pray. Let me just say, if you're in the room or you're joining us online today and you have never um, given your life to Jesus, what, what Paul says is so critical and so important. He says that we implore you be reconciled to God. And before you go trying to make it right with your, fan, your, your fellow man, if you have not seen your heart transformed by God, it's not going to go that great probably. And so I just want to encourage you right now to take that step of faith and give your life to Jesus. And if that's you in the room or online, um, I'm going to begin this prayer just by giving you an opportunity to do that. And then I'm going to pray for all our other friends in the room. But you can pray a prayer like that with me right now. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I know my relationship with God is broken and I can't fix it on my own. So I want to ask you to forgive me, 
to give me life. I believe in you, that you're the Son of God, that you died and rose again. I want to give my life to you today. I want to follow you and have you be my king. In Jesus' name. Lord, for all my other friends, I pray that you would show them specifically if there is something in their life that they need to go and make right, that you would give them the courage to do that, that you would speak so clearly through your Holy Spirit to their hearts that they would know that step they need to take in the middle of this crazy season we find ourselves in as a nation. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. We bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.